Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I have on the show today my friend from a distance, Barnabas Piper. Barnabas Piper is, yes, he is the son of pastor and author John Piper, and he's actually written a book about what it was like being raised in the Piper household. It's called The Pastor's Kid, Finding Your Own Faith and Identity. Barnabas has also written um, a, uh, a book on doubt and unbelief called Help My Unbelief, Why Doubt is Not the Enemy of Faith, and also uh, more recently, The Curious Christian, How Discovering Wonder Enriches Every Part of Your Life. Uh, Barnabas has a an interesting journey. And I, what I love about Barnabas is he's not afraid to just be honest and, and talk about failures and successes and highs and lows and things like doubt and unbelief and what it was like being raised as a pastor's kid. So we had a really wonderful conversation. It got, it did get, it got pretty raw and, and real, um, which, which I knew it would. And um, I just, I love Barnabas's perspective on the Christian faith, on evangelicalism, on life. And so uh, we try to cover as much as we could in, in an hour. So without further ado, please welcome to Theology in the Raw for the first time, the one and only Barnabas Piper. my friend, uh, Barnabas Piper. Uh, the first time I heard about Barnabas Piper, I'm sure was in a, uh, sermon <laughs> from your dad, uh, Barnabas's dad, whom, whom most of my audience probably knows John Piper. Uh, but I'm, I'll never forget hearing, you know, sermon illustrations talking about Barnabas and, you know, uh, and I was like, that, that's such a cool name. And then, um, a couple years ago we got to hang out, uh, in person in, in Los Angeles. And man, I just, I've really appreciated, as we we're just talking about offline, you know, just, just your, for lack of better terms, your authentic or honest perspective on the Christian life. I think sometimes we have these kind of pie in the sky, you know, views of Christianity, especially mm-hmm. kind of celebrity Christianity. And I just, yeah, I really appreciated your honesty and, 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 uh, and, and how you, you've reflected on, on the Christian faith. <laughs> so anyway, all that to say, thanks so much for being on theology in the raw. Absolutely. I'm glad to be on with you and uh, appreciate those kind words. Um, yeah, I haven't, I haven't found celebrity to be a terribly beneficial thing in the Christian life. So it's, uh, <laughs> to me, it's sort of any reflections on faith sort of reside outside of yeah. celebrity, just in the sense of that's, I don't know, that's a thing that exists, but it's not a, uh, it's not very formational in terms of one's genuine yeah. faith, I guess. Well, what can we start? Let's just start there. Cause I mean, you, you sure. kind of wrote a book about it, um, that touched on it. I mean, you, you do have a name that a lot of people recognize. I mean, what, so why don't you, can you give us like some pros and some cons about what it was like, you know, growing up in a family that was very, very high profile. Um, I mean, not just a pastor's kid, but a very high profile pastor's kid. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, all of the pros reside entirely with, just the quality of my parents as, as godly parents in terms of their intentionality in, in raising us um, around the word of God, teaching us faithfully, their consistency in the home. Um, You know, my dad's, my dad was not a different person at home than he was in public ministry, Mm -hmm. their dedication as parents, you know, in terms of just presence in our lives 
little league games and my I don't know I mean my mom I think is a superhero of some variety as are as are most moms of numerous children I have I have four siblings Mm -hmm. so um you know being able to get us all where we needed to be and they just were such a consistent presence so the pros of of my upbringing are are mostly private you know it's the things that happen in the home the things that happen in family life my parents consistency their love of us uh, and on the church side, it's that aspect as well. It's the familial aspect. It's it's the the relationships that were built. Those so so the same things that the same things that really anybody who has a godly family has access to. Um, the downsides re- are when life when you move into the public spheres of life. Mm-hmm. Those are I don't think those are I don't think those are an upside for most people. They are. They're either a temptation, you know, a temptation to ego, a temptation to be a poser, to be somebody you're not, um, or, or they, they kind of crush you, you know, so huh. they, the expectations that are placed on you from the outside. So, I mean, as a pastor's kid, uh, I felt that a lot, the, the expectation to live up to a standard that was something other than live a life that honors Jesus Christ, you know, something, something other than authentic genuine faith in Christ. You know, there's, there's moral standards. There's what would your father think if he saw this? There's just sort of all of these, those, those outside things that, that made it very hard to, to also gauge what is my faith versus what is this, what is the external expectation? What is the faith that has been handed to me? Mm -hmm. Um, And it took me, I don't know, I was, I was probably in my mid twenties. So 10 or so years ago before all of that kind of shook itself out largely because I made enough dumb decisions and kind of brought myself to, you know, or God brought me to my knees, I guess, to help me realize what does it mean to have a real relationship with Christ and kind of shook loose a lot of the, the things that had been placed on me or the things that I had attached myself to that weren't, that were much more external expectation, that kind of thing. Did you have like a, a, a prodigal son do you, do you have like a, a falling away kind of part of your narrative, like growing up, or did you always own your faith or? It, you know, it kind of both, but it was, it, so it wasn't prodigal son. I was, it wasn't prodigal son in that I sort of ran away from the faith. There was never that, but there was a, there was an internal hypocrisy aspect of things because, because I so wanted to be seen as, um, the good Christian kid with all of the answers. I was all, I've always been a know-it-all. I've always been kind of too smart for my own good, or at least too smart mouth for my own good. It's probably a better way to put it. Um, And so, so even up, yeah, even up through college, there was a sense of external per, you know, perfection, so to speak facade and then internal identity crisis, not having a keen sense of who I was in Christ and when that, you know, when that kind of hypocrisy happens, there's a lot of room for just for sin to begin to sort of fester and grow. And for me, that was issues of, of honesty, issues of, of misrepresenting who I was to try to be seen as something. And that's the kind of stuff that caught up to me because it, it just led to a whole series of, of dumb choices and dishonesty that got me fired from a job. That was, I mean, it was kind of my first great job out of college and a few years into it, I, I got fired and, and just m- my inner turmoil and all of that stuff got exposed. Huh. And so that was, that was when 
God was really able to say, no, this is who I am. All of this stuff that you have been posing at isn't real, you know? Hmm. So you, it was, it was the time when I, when I was really forced to sort through what do I genuinely believe versus what have I been handed? Hmm. Who is, who is God really? What do I, what does it really mean to believe the scriptures or, or do I believe them? Mm -hmm. Um, and and through that, come to a place of being able to say, I really do genuinely follow Jesus. Hmm. And I, I really can own that. And I really can ask for forgiveness. And I really do understand what grace and forgiveness means. And also, here's all the ways that I'm terrible as a Christian and all the ways that I have fallen mm-hmm. on my face. And I, you know, kind of forced to not think too highly of myself, which I had yeah. absolutely done prior to that. Um, so it, it wasn't a prodigal son aspect of fleeing as much as it was, maybe I was more like the older brother, you know, in the, in terms of <laughs> oh, yeah. having, having all of the right, having all the right answers and all the right facade and not having the heart of a, of a genuine loving, believing Christian. Did you ever struggle with like an identity crisis? Like I would imagine, and maybe, maybe this is totally not true. I don't know, but like rather than being Barnabas Piper being John Piper's son, or I'm the, you know, like that kind of, you know, and people live under the, cover of like mm-hmm. a, a celebrity kind of figure. Was that ever really difficult um, figuring out who you were or, or not necessarily? Yeah, I think it was a compounding factor for me. So um, again, because I, there, there wasn't a, an overt rebellion against it or anything like that, but it definitely played a role both on the, you know, on the, on the ego boosting side of, mm-hmm. you know, kind of feeding into the worst aspects of me, you know, pretending to be something but then also causing a fair amount of insecurity because, oh, I, I can't admit to not knowing something. I can't admit to failing. I can't admit to sin because I'm expected to be, hmm. you know, this, this, you know, paragon of, of evangelicalism yeah. or whatever. And, and I, I, you know, I still struggle with that a little bit now, you know, being an author, being, you know, in the, the pseudo public eye, the, the, the very small Christian public eye, if you will, um, trying to find that balance of being a genuine follower of Christ with a genuine voice that is my own versus the pressure to kind of uh, parrot mm-hmm. whatever my, my dad's stance on things is. Because he and I don't, we don't hold all the same views and we certainly don't express things the same ways. You know, my, my sense of humor is different. My, my understanding of certain parts of, of scripture are different. The core things we believe similarly in terms of, you know, basic Christian orthodoxy, but so that that's a tension. I still feel some, you know, and I yeah. still probably every week I hear from somebody who makes some reference to my dad that, that I have to conscientiously figure out how to respond graciously to, but not cave to. Can, can you identify some of those points? I was, cause I was gonna ask that question anyway, like where, where have you really resonated with your dad's theology approach to Christianity, whatever, and mm-hmm. where are some areas that you've departed from? And again, I, I never want to, oh, right. what, 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 as much as you feel comfortable talking about publicly. Yeah. And, and, yeah. Well, and so I'll say this initially, like my, my dad and I have a good relationship and we're not, you know, this is not a, there, there are not points of contention that cause, yeah. you know, friction between us. We're not arguing. We're not fighting. Some things I avoid talking about because I don't like arguing with my dad. Some things it's just, it, it's peaceable. Um, I would say, um, the biggest issues of departure have to do with his application of roles of men and women in life. 
Um, okay. You know, he's, he has said many things very pointedly about jobs that women should not hold or should women be professors in seminary or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't see the application of scripture the same way he does when it comes to those things. Um, he's, you know, he's one of the primary writers on the complementarian viewpoint. He and Wayne Grudem wrote right. sort of the, the seminal tome on it. Um, some of which I agree with much of which I think the application has been maybe extended too far into, okay. into life, into marriage, into society, things like that. Would you still be on the um, complementary side of things as far as ministry? Or when it comes you... to leadership and the, when it, the, the only place I would put myself as a complementarian, um, you know, and I, and I think this is probably cause I, cause I think this is defensible from scripture as opposed to some of the others are the role of pastor, pastor elder in the church. Okay. Does, I see that as, um, as designated for men. Um, when you start to apply it into male headship and the rest of life, jobs women can't hold, I just don't see a lot of biblical basis for that in scripture, whether it's law enforcement, whether it's, yeah. you know, working outside the home, whatever. I mean, there, there are a lot of very conservative complementarian applications that I think are not really very defensible from, from a biblical viewpoint. Um, so that's a significant departure from my dad. If it, when, when you get to reformed theology as a whole, uh, I am. I would consider myself reformed. Um, a difference from my dad is that I don't wear Calvinism as a badge of honor. Um, you know, it's to me. I, I've heard it said that you know, reformed theology is is like underwear. It should be, it should be supportive and helpful and not visible. Um, and I and I kind of. It's kind of how I see it. It's like it's necessary. It is a. It is a thing that that influences how you view scripture and God and everything else. But I don't, I don't want to throw it up in the forefront and systematize Mm -hmm. or over categorize things so much that there's a neat and tidy answer to every theological question. Cause I, I think, I think, uh, reformed theology, if, if misused runs the risk of, of over systematizing God Mm -hmm. and limp and honestly, as much as they, we, they talk about a big sovereign God. It can, it can limit God and over define him such that he loses his sovereignty by, by categorizing him too much. Oddly enough, I just, I had um, Greg Boyd on the podcast a few weeks ago. Uh, By the time (laughs) you're, by the time this is released, um, I think that one will already have been released, but he kind of said the same exact Mm -hmm. thing that it's almost like his, yeah, he, he feels like his position, which I'm still processing, um, is almost gives God more freedom <laughs> than, than less. Um, yeah. Interesting. And, um, and I think, you know, I, I, I don't know where Greg Boyd stands on much. now I know that when I was, you know, my, my high school years, especially yeah. the open theism debate was significant. And my dad and Greg Boyd yeah. were pastors of significant churches in the same denomination, holding polar opposite <laughs> viewpoints. Uh, I yeah. would very much side with my dad's view of, you know, God's, God's sovereignty and predestination and things like that versus where Boyd was then. And I know that Boyd has, the theological progression happens. I don't know where he's at exactly now. And I don't want to unfairly well, represent hearing, him. So, I, you know, yeah. And we don't need to dive too deep into this, but I remember in yeah. seminary reading, you know, Bruce Ware and reading the, the critiques of open theism. We never were kind of allowed to read Pinnock or Boyd or mm-hmm. others. And, and so I had this kind of, um, caricature if, if, or, you know, um, or secondhand kind of source yeah. of what he actually believed. So it was fascinating to hear 
saying, okay, you, you tell me what you believe. And I was like, well, man, that, that sounds really different than the stuff. The, <laughs> he even said that he doesn't even call himself an open theist. Like, that's not a term he uses or prefers. Like somebody else sort of coined that term and gave it to him. But I mean, in that, I mean it, that debate was prominent 20 years ago. Yeah. I mean, it's it, theological debate and understanding and relevance uh, shift dramatically. I mean, f- 15 years is an eternity. It in, is, yeah. In, in terms of theological debate. And so, I mean, he, I'm imagining his, his viewpoint has, has refined, refined yeah. and changed a little bit over time, or maybe he's exactly where he was. I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah. I, 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 I found it. I, I'm, it's one of those, it's not my area, like predestination and free will right. and super lapsarian. I mean, all that stuff. I'm not, <laughs> that's, that's not been an interest of mine. So I did, I, I kind of plead the fifth on it. I mean, when, I, and frankly, it's not really an interest of mine. I mean, it's yeah. a, it is a, it's a thing that I look at and I, it matters to me because I do see it in scripture. Mm-hmm. And for that reason, it has to be studied, taught, understood to a degree. But where I get uncomfortable is where that is the, the flag that is yeah. waved because I think, I think it's, it's just not very helpful. Yeah. And especially in, in our day and age where there are so many questions, oppositions, struggles with coming to know Jesus um, with the gospel as a like the kind of the big G gospel, not, not just a, a reform definition of gospel. Um, to, to put that at the forefront is often to create an obstacle to finding Jesus. And so I think I, it's dear to me. It matters to me. But it is not, it's not a subject that I love yeah. to debate or, uh, or to get into in most contexts. Yeah, no, I'm the same way. I'm the same. I mean, when I heard Boyd articulate his position, I'm like, ah, that, I could see the coherency. You definitely have, definitely have exegetical arguments. I mean, I've got several like, what about this? What about that kind of things? But I mean, it seemed like a, I absolutely wouldn't say it's like heresy or he's diminishing God. Like it seemed like a coherent way in which to, to read scripture. Um, and I think it has some really interesting, if not helpful, pastoral uh, applications. Uh, but yeah, most of all, I found that when he articulated his his position, it seemed very different than the critiques I've heard of his position, which is pretty, I mean, look, you and I have been around this. You, yeah. we, we've been in this game long enough, but that's typically how it goes, right? When you're raised in an environment, that's always critiquing that person and that person's a heretic. When you actually talk right. to the heretic, you're like, wow, you're very different than the way you were described by the people that were critiquing you. When I, yeah, and I think I was just having a conversation with, with uh, other members of our, our staff at, at our church today, and we were talking about the, the risk that we run in this cultural context of waging war within the church, you know, that th- the defense of the gospel is against, <laughs> is against the enemy, not against one another, primarily. That doesn't mean that we don't disagree, and it doesn't mean that people within the church do not misrepresent Scripture, misunderstand Scripture. In some sense, we all misunderstand Scripture in in places, Mm -hmm. but we need to defend the gospel against against the the devil and against the lies of the devil. And and so to to be waging war within the church is big picture harmful. And so I... Again, I don't know where Greg Boyd is at. If he was on, I, I certainly would not want to bring the big guns to bear. I would rather figure out, well, first of all, what does it look like for him to love Jesus? Because right. that, that's mutual ground. Yeah. He, I love Jesus. I, I think he does. And so there's a, 
there's a mutuality that is the defining thing there. Um, beyond that, I don't know where his theological yeah. stance is. If I did, we very well might differ extremely and have a very pointed disagreement. But, uh, but if, if there's the mutual ground of following Jesus with yeah. our lives, that ought to matter more. So he, yeah, he, his faith feels incredibly vibrant, authentic, real. And his commitment to scripture is almost, I don't want to say fundamentalist, but he's, he's so scripturally committed and, and even like concerned that there's drift on the authority of scripture. I mean, again, I found him to be, yeah, uh, we hung out once at, um, at ETS and man, he was like, you know, we're praying over the pizza we're about to eat Giordano's in Denver. And, um, and, and he was like praying, praying for the waitress and talking to her and stuff. And I'm like, dude, this guy's like, yeah, he, he whatever di- agreement or disagreement there might be theologically, he just seemed like a radical Jesus follower, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I think, I mean, it's funny because I have this internal twinge right now that's like, oh, your, your Calvinist cohort are going to be so offended <laughs> at your unwillingness to, to, sh- to shoot Greg. I don't think they're listening sky, to so my to podcast. <laughs> that's probably true. Um, but I mean, I, I do have strong theological stances on things, but over the last few years, I have tried more and more to understand what it looks like to have a commonality in Christ with those who you profoundly disagree. Yeah. I suspect I profoundly disagree with Greg Boyd, yeah. but what you just described as somebody who I also look at and go, ah, uh, he, he probably knows Jesus in a way that I do not. Yeah. And cause I don't pray with waitresses yeah. and, and I don't have sort of that bubbling over passion that you just described. Yeah. And so there's a, there's something that I should probably gain and learn from right. somebody who has that emphasis and that, that spiritual development and growth that I don't have. Yeah, that's good. So you wrote this book, a pastor's kid, um, that just talked about your journey as a pat, not just any old pastor's kid, but the kid of, of John Piper. Um, what, what was the response to that book? Cause I know you were like, you're pretty honest in that book. And, and, um, well, first of all, I want to know what was, your dad's reaction. And then what's been the general reaction to that book? So it was kind of, I don't want to say it's yeah. a bomb, but I mean, it was like, wow, this book is really honest. Like you didn't hide, hide stuff, you know? Yeah. It, it wasn't like the, it wasn't like the memoir tell all of like all of the, uh, you know, kind of dirty secrets of, of the Piper household. Here's all the ways my parents are hypocrites, whatever. Cause they weren't <laughs> right. Like, you know, it, they, they really were not. It was, it was a, it was a first person plural. So trying to speak on behalf of pastor's kids as a whole. Mm-hmm. And I did talk to many of them to, to make sure that I wasn't crazy and okay. I wasn't misrepresenting the life of a pastor's kid. First person plural, look at these are the struggles that pastor's kids face of, of pressure, of hypocrisy, of doctrine, of what does it mean to really love Jesus when you're told how to love Jesus and mm-hmm. never given a chance to figure it out for yourself, those kinds of things. Um, my dad's response. So my dad didn't read it until I finished. So he knew I was writing it. I wasn't, you know, I didn't hide it from him, but he wrote the forward for it. And he's pretty honest in the forward where he, like the first sentence is something like this was painful for me to read hmm. and kind of laid out different parts where it, it, it hit a nerve, but also places where it was, he thought it was a, a helpful and necessary read for pastors. And then kind of ended with, he resonated with my heart for pastors, for pastors, kids, and for the church, which is really unifying. My goal was not to drive a wedge between 
pastor's kids mm-hmm. and their families or their church, but to say, there already is a gap. Can we, can we bridge it? Can pastors and pastors' spouses draw closer to their kids? Can the kids be more honest in a way that brings families together? And can the church gain some awareness of the pressures that exist on the pastor's family? Hmm. Um, and, you know, you, you've written books. And so you know that you write it and you kind of put it out in the world and you just kind of shrug and go, it's in God's hands now. You know, like <laughs> it's, I, I hope it resonates with people. I hope it helps people in their place of need. Because you've written on some very sensitive subjects. And, and so those are things that you go, I, I really hope it, it hits yeah. the nerves that it needs to hit, either to convict or to encourage. Uh, and that was my hope and prayer with the book. And thankfully, it, you know, it's not the world's bestseller. But it, the stories I've heard back from both pastors' kids and pastors alike are exactly what I prayed for. Really? Where you remember sitting at, sitting at lunch with a pastor of a large Southern Baptist church at one point, and he just, you know, we were with a group of people, and he just kind of leaned over to me and he said, Hey, um, your book was one that I gave to my high school daughter who's, you know, she's like an all-state runner, uh, prom queen, just sort of the perfect all-American kid. He said, I, you know, we, or he read the book and then started just asking her questions that he had never thought to ask. And he said, she just broke down and cried hmm. because there was so much sort of pent-up pressure under the surface of perfection that she had never known. She could talk about that there was an, an outlet for any of those kinds of things. And so I've heard those kinds of stories. I've heard, I've heard from pastor's kids who are 40 and 50 years old saying that it, it put into words things that they have struggled with in their own spiritual identities for, for decades. Um, and, and I'm just profoundly grateful that my, <laughs> the, the unpleasant aspects of my upbringing, the challenges that I faced are things that God has been able to use to help, you know, to help in some cases, men, some other families. I just, I just heard from a high school senior two weeks ago, I think, who just said he's at his wits end and he doesn't know how he's going to make it through spiritually because he just feels crushed by the weight of his parents' ministry. And mm-hmm. he got his hands on my book and, and he said, it's such an encouragement to know that there's somebody 20 years ahead of me who, who's, who's making it. Mm-hmm. And I can, you know, God, God used it in that way. And the book is five, six years old. I don't know how he found it. I don't know who gave it to him. I don't know if he like got it from the church library or whatever, but, um, and the funny thing is it's out of print right now because it's switching from one publisher to another. So the copies <laughs> that are floating around out there are, are kind of sparse right now. Um, but it's, uh, it's been really incredible to both to realize how common my experience is with pastors, kids of different generations of tiny churches, mega churches, you know, seven, eight, 12 different denominations, pastors, I mean, Brazil, South Korea, Europe, Australia. I mean, just, there's a, there's a commonality to the challenges ministry kids face. And, and the other really encouraging aspect is the number of pastors who have read it because they want to love their children better. Wow. That's awesome. The number of young pastors who have read it and said, uh, I'm reading this while my child is two so that I can love them better when they're eight and 12 and 18. And I just, that, I love that. I love seeing people in ministry figure out how to put the ministry of their family first. Um, And so that's, that's been deeply encouraging. Are there, are there some common themes or like what, what's the most common theme among 
all the pastors, kids you've talked to, like challenges that they face? Just expectations, I think primarily. Um, put, put, on so, by, put on by their parents or by the larger church context or both? It's largely the church context. I have heard from a few who's, you know, they get these sort of like, you represent our family, the, the internal family thing. There are definitely some profoundly dysfunctional pastors' families out there. I've heard from representatives of them. Yeah. Hypocritical parents, you know, the ones where dad was in ministry for 20 years and then they found out he was having an affair with a secretary. And yeah. so the whole world comes crumbling down. That's a, that's a whole different yeah. thing because you're talking family crisis, trauma, trust issues, just the hurtfulness of that situation. What I hear most consistently is just the, the pressure to believe something and the pressure to be something without the, the ability and the freedom to grow into it. Hmm. You know, we have to grow into maturity as people and as Christians and pastors kids are not really given that opportunity. Like giving most them space, give, have, giving, a, giving them space to doubt, to question, to yes. believe their own kind of set of things or whatever, like giving them just that and, space. Yeah, and, yeah. and be an adolescent idiot, you yeah. know, like 15 year olds <laughs> are stupid and they do dumb things, but there's not the freedom to do the dumb thing and learn from your mistake or to, to kind of be graciously responded to when you're a clown uh, or, or when you're, or when you like really screw up, you know, you get somebody pregnant or you get a DUI or whatever. Mm -hmm. Those are things that, um, the pastor's kids don't have the, there's a scarlet letter aspect to some of those things, as opposed to the bring being folded back into the family of God in a restorative, gracious, like, this is what forgiveness looks mm -hmm. like. This is what grace looks like. This is what support looks like. And so, and then on the, on the personal spiritual side, it's a matter of you are told what to believe, how to believe it, how to express it from, you know, before you can think and speak. And so, yeah, things like doubt, things like questions, you're, you're figuring, you know, you get to a hard passage of scripture and, and you're very uncomfortable with it, but you can't pose the questions that are internal because you know how you're supposed to believe that how you're supposed to believe in the sovereignty of God or how you're supposed to believe in the judgment of God or the mercy of God or whatever it is. And you go, I just don't get it. Or that doesn't like, how does this mesh? And you can't ask those questions freely uh, because, because you're, because you represent the pastor who teaches that stuff. Um, there's also an aspect of like, if you screw up, your parents might lose their job and their livelihood. Oh. Um, you know, because so, so you, if you take issue with what your parents teach, you're taking issue with their boss, who is Jesus. So that's, that's a problem. If you screw up, your parents might lose their job because the deacons or the elders or the whatever governing body you have could say, they could look at First Timothy and say, you're not governing your household well. So you can be the cause of hmm. destitution or job loss or whatever. And all of those are factors in in the pressure on a pastor's kid. And I, the, I mainly hear about the, yeah, the external expectations and then that internal belief pressure. So we got a good number of pastors that listen to this. What would your advice mm -hmm. be to them as a, as a pastor with, with, let's just assume they have kids and they're trying to say, okay, so what can I do now yeah. to not, to prevent some of this from happening? It's really hard for a pastor to prevent the external uh, church-wide kind of pressure because un unless 
unless it's a brand new church and you can sort of create a whole culture. I do see that diminishing somewhat because there's church planting has been such a, uh, such a phenomenon over the last 15, 20 years that younger churches seem to, to not have quite as many struggles with that. Or maybe it's just that the pastor's kids are younger and aren't articulating it yet. I'm not sure which. Okay. Um, but I think the best thing that the pastor and pastor's spouse can do is to have real open conversation with your kids so that you are in it together as a family. Like that, the pastor I mentioned of that mega church, he just started asking questions of his daughter. Hey, do you feel pressure like this? Do you feel like people are watching you? Do you feel like you can't say this, do this, believe this? And then, you know, see where that goes, but respond with grace, respond with a listening ear. Don't preach at them. Don't counsel them. Just be a good parent who just says, I'm with you in this. Hmm. I didn't know you were struggling with that. I'm sorry. I didn't ask earlier and then turn it around and go, guess what? I feel the same things. Hmm. Like we, we share this because pastors feel the same thing. Pastors spouses feel the same thing. They feel the yeah. pressure to be and to do and towards perfection and whatever. Um, and so to, to kind of share that, because isolation is a terrible thing for a pastor's kid to just feel like nobody is walking this the same way that I am. Hmm. Um, so I think those kinds of conversations and then those sort of gracious responses to show, because I mean, Jesus responded graciously to people who were hurting, doubting, struggling. So like you're representing Jesus to them in a way that they have maybe never seen. Hmm. When you give them the opportunity to cry, to scream, to swear, to ask questions that are unsafe and to say, I'm really glad that you're my child and I'm really glad you're, you just said that yeah. and that we can talk like this. Yeah. I want to uh, thank you for that, man. I think that's that I'm, see, I'm not a, I mean, I'm not a pastor per se, but I'm in ministry, but it's, 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 I think, I think it's different with my kids. I don't, because we're not in a week to week Christian and like community where I'm upheld, you know, I'm just, right. I'm a pew sitter. Like I go, I show up at church. <laughs> I, nobody knows I'm there and nobody knows who I am or doesn't care. you know, so my kid, I don't, I, I don't think my kids have that kind of pressure, but, um, but man, even, yeah, I need, I need to double check that though. Don't I, I need to like actually figure out, like, do you feel, you know, pressure to be a certain person that, that yeah. is actually hindering you from being the person God created you to be because. Yeah. I mean, I, I think those are good questions for any parent to ask yeah. just in terms of, especially a church going family, because there's so much that a, a child walks the way they, they kind of, they kind of live according to the lanes that are drawn around them, but yeah. that's not necessarily what they're thinking and internalizing and, and the things they're struggling with. But yeah, if you're, if you're in vocational ministry, it, there's a pointedness to it. So when I moved from the publishing world, which I worked in for 14 or 15 years mm -hmm. into church ministry, just a few months ago, my daughters had uh, had some challenges with this before I even got into the job mm -hmm. because they told friends at school that their dad was switching jobs from uh, from a publishing job to a church job and they started to get treated differently at a public school. Mm -hmm. Now, granted, we live in Tennessee where church culture is very different than it is in you know the East Coast, West Coast, and in the North. But but I me, mean, my daughter came home just annoyed one day because she's like, I don't want to go over to that friend's house anymore. Cause her mom is always like, well, you can't listen to that music cause your dad works at a church or you can't watch that movie anymore cause your dad works at a church. And so she's just like, I don't even want to deal with that. And huh, so, huh. you know, that I'm glad she told me, but it opened a door for me to have a conversation where both it allowed me to empathize with her and say, 
trust me, I completely understand. Yeah. And also just to, to kind of reiterate for her what a real standard is, Mm -hmm. you know, we don't pick our music based on my job. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there are good standards and bad standards, <laughs> right. but you know, they're, 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 the moral standard is the same for anybody. Like, what is a yeah. Christ honoring life? That's what we're trying to figure out. Yeah. I, w- I would love to shift gears a little bit. Well, not actually not yeah. too much. Um, and, and again, I just, I want to be super sensitive to <laughs> you being, you know, a public figure and have also, also having a personal life, but you, you went through a, a divorce a few years ago. Um, mm-hmm. do, would you mind as much as you're comfortable talking us through that. And what, what I specifically want to know is given the fact that you do have a name with status, <laughs> um, how, it would be different if you were, if you were just, you know, Joe, the mechanic in the back of the pew. And I apologize right. to anybody named Joe, who's a mechanic who sits in the back of a pew. Um, but like it's, it's, I, w- I would imagine that being a Christian in Christendom and, and evangelicalism and going through a divorce, is different for you than it would be maybe for the other person. Cause you have to deal with all kinds of other perceptions, opinions and stuff about that. Can you walk us through that and how you did and are navigating that situation? Yeah. Um, yeah, I appreciate the way you asked the question and yeah, it's, so I got, I got divorced in 2016. So it's been almost, almost three years now. Um, wow. and and it was trying to figure out those questions was really hard because on the one hand, I'm trying to, you know, I was in the middle of, of what was probably the most painful personal experience of my life. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't something that I wanted. It was something that um, for a, a whole variety of, of reasons, my ex-wife felt was the best choice for her. And uh, so it was, it was, it was unwanted. It was really difficult. And um, so I was, I was trying to deal with it at the, at a spiritual level, at a relational level, at just at a parenting level. Mm-hmm. Um, my daughters are, are middle school age now. So old, we're older elementary school then. And so old enough to kind of know what was going on, but, um, but young enough that they needed really they needed certain kinds of explanation and not other kinds of explanation yeah. and real profound love and presence. And, um, and then at the same time, I'm trying to figure out how do I communicate this publicly? What is my obligation to, yeah. to my public? Because at that point I had, I had written two books and had my third on the way out very shortly. And so there's, there is a, I felt I owed it to, mm-hmm my readership, the people who listen to the podcast that I co-host to say something, but I wanted to, to be respectful of my ex-wife's privacy and, you know, and, and, and just to be kind, like she doesn't, not to throw anybody under the bus, not to, not to speak spitefully. Um, and at the same time, there's a, there's a measure of wisdom in like, it's not anybody's business at one level. And so, and so I, I wrote, I wrote a piece that I, I've since pulled off, I since pulled off my website, but I left it up for a couple of years that just sort of laid out what had happened and my kind of my heart in that moment mm-hmm. um, of trying to avoid cynicism, speaking highly of marriage. Like I, I wasn't cynical. I, I, I don't think more lowly of marriage than I did before. I'm not sort of jaded and like, well, that's for the birds, poor guys getting married. I, I think more highly of it now. I just, I think I understand better what goes into it now. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of the miracle of a faithful marriage, because I don't, 
I don't think that that can happen without some profound grace from God. Um, but so, so I wrote that I, I it talked on a couple different podcasts, one with a guy named Richard Clark, who's, uh, works for Christianity today. And, and it, so we, he, he's also divorced. And so we talked for probably 45, 50 minutes about what it's like to be divorced in the church. Mm-hmm. And what I discovered was that one of my greatest fears, which was people's judgment, people kind of the, the stone throwing mm-hmm. scarlet letter waving mentality that evangelicals can very often have. My fear was way overblown. Um, and the responses that I heard from people were overwhelmingly gracious. Hmm. Um, and I mean, just pe- people, some people saying, I'm sorry, I'm praying, you know, just a very simple, some people sharing their own stories of pain and how God helped them get through it. Some people sharing their own stories of pain that they were still dramatically stuck in. Mm-hmm. Um, but just there was, there was very few, although I remember them vividly, kind of nasty responses. It's amazing how the negative ones always stand out in your mind. But when I just yeah. think about quantity, we're talking like a 98 to two ratio of okay. kindness and grace versus misunderstanding and lack of grace. Um, since then, it has just been a, again, trying to primarily focus on what is what does it look like for me to f- faithfully walk through this as a believer, as a dad, um, just to, to progress through dealing with pain and sorrow and um, how do you pray for reconciliation or not pray for reconciliation and these kinds of things, to do that in a way that, that leaves my conscience clear before the Lord. Because that's, really that's really what I wanted. I was like, wherever the other side of this thing is, this mess that I'm walking through, I want to come out of it and know that I did the right things, not to check boxes, but to pour myself out in, in prayer and in faithfulness and in, and in, and in for my kids that on the other side, I can go, it, it is in God's hands and I'll be okay. Is there anything that I just, this, this question literally just popped in my head. So if it's inappropriate, let me know. Is there anything looking back? Do you ever feel like there's something I could have done to prevent this? Do you ever, or do, oh, I guess there's two questions. One, do you struggle with that thought? And then yeah. how do you answer that thought if you do struggle with it? Um, it that has been a struggle. Um, it, it, the struggle changes over time. Um, I'd say the first year and a half to two years out, that was a very much more present thing. Um, some of that had to do with the relational dynamic with, uh, with my ex-wife, we have, we have joint custody of our kids and she's a very involved, very dedicated mom. And so okay. we're, we're in touch regularly, which okay. is great for the kids because I mean, it, of all of the cases in a situation like this, uh, it's, you know, it's much better than one parent being absent or there being constant, constant conflict between, between the parents. But it, it did change what it looked like, whatever moving on means, mm-hmm. it changed that dynamic for me because she was a presence in my life all the time and still is. Um, and so, yeah, there was a lot of regret. Mm-hmm. Um, it, regret that it happened as well as just sorting through how did it happen? How did we get yeah. here? Those kinds of things. Um, and that, that part of that is also... You know, you asked the, 
you asked the question um, a moment ago, just um, kind of, we, I was talking about moving on and those kinds of things. Part of me moving on to, to, with a clean conscience was making sure that, that I had owned every part of my failures in our marriage. Mm-hmm. So some of that is, was repenting to my ex-wife if, you know, for, for failures and no marriage falls apart completely in a one-sided way. Mm-hmm. Um, some are much more one-sided than others, but I definitely had to, to own sin and own failure in my own life and, mm-hmm. and repent of it and apologize. Um, but there does, I think for me anyway, there came a point where I just recognized that if I really believe in forgiveness and if I really believe in, in the, the power of repentance and moving in a, in a new direction in faithfulness to Christ, I can't be marked by, re- I can't be shaped by regret. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean like there's some sort of phony, like I'm fine. Everything's great. But just a, no, if, if Christ is the defining being in my life, that shapes me going forward, not things that, that maybe I should have done differently eight years ago. Hmm. Um, and I think that's true for, I think that's true for anybody who, who is marked by regret. If you believe in the forgiveness of Christ, at some point you have to let that be the shaping fact, factor in your life. And, and there's freedom in it, mm-hmm. but it's a freedom you have to, you have to remind yourself of constantly. I have to regularly go, I'm, I'm forgiven. And also in a divorce context, it's never, it is never helpful to try to divide blame and be like, it's mm-hmm. 70% your fault and 30% my fault. Mm-hmm. Um, my divorce was her decision. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was the decision that she chose uh, for a whole variety of reasons um, that, and I, I wish she hadn't, and, uh, and I don't think she was right in her decision making. So there's also a part of I can't hold myself guilty or responsible for somebody else's choices. Mm -hmm. And to figure out how to do that without bitterness is a whole other, it's a whole other challenge. Like, I don't want to be bitter towards her. I don't want to be angry towards her. I don't want to, to have any of those things that are like any of those, those sort of sinful welling up. I wish ill towards Mm -hmm. you. So I don't think that's right. I don't think that's Christ-like and I don't think it's healthy for, for my kids to be around either. So that's sort of a, I don't know, I don't know if that answers your question or not. It's just that, but even my lack of clarity kind of gives you the sense of the push and pull of some Mm -hmm. of these struggles. Do you have a good relationship with your ex-wife now? I mean, do you guys get along okay or is it? Yeah. I mean, in terms of, in terms of a, okay, just a solid ongoing relationship. Yeah, it's good. Uh, She's remarried now and that, uh, was that that hard? I can imagine that'd be really hard or. Yeah, it was. I mean, the circumstances surrounding it were frustrating. Uh, it was hard. And then at the same time, it was, you know, in God's, in God's wisdom that is beyond my understanding, it was a thing that I needed to, to free me up for just a, a clear look at the future, you know, to, to be able to go. I, I knew that I needed to move on. I knew that chapter was closed, but like, it's all the way closed. Yeah. Yeah. And you're not remarried, right? Or are you- I'm not. No. Uh, I'm sure you studied divorce a lot. <laughs> do you, so this is good. Yeah, this, I might as well just ask it. It's theology in the raw. Do you, do you feel like your divorce, like you're biblically cleared in a sense, as difficult as it is? And are you biblically free to remarry? I've not actually dug in. I mean, I know the textbook yeah. kind of like four views on divorce, or whatever, but like how, how have you processed this theologically? Yeah, I think, 
so the short answer to your question is yes, I do think uh, I'm I'm sort of in the theological clear to remarry. I think, yeah, and without getting into all of the various views, I think questions of that have to do with you know who is the who is the wronged party or who is the abandoned party? Yeah. Uh, what is the marital or life status of your former spouse? You yeah. know, is there, are they, have they passed away? Are they remarried? Um, is there, what does repentance look like in the relationship? You know, in terms of reconciliation, willingness to reconcile yeah. those kinds of things. So I think there's, there, there are a lot of factors in that, but given, given the choices she made, given the, her, the fact that she is remarried, given what reconciliation repentance look like and don't look like mm -hmm. respectively. Um, there's, yeah, I think I'm in a position where remarrying yeah. would be just fine. Now, now your last time I checked, this was probably 15 years ago. Your dad ha has a really strict, well, let me say that strict might be that, a specific view on divorce. Like, no, never, ever. Like, has that, has that caught, uh, how have you guys now you and your dad navigated your relationship? That's that, this could probably take a whole nother podcast episode. Yeah. I'm sure. But well, I, I mean, I, yeah, I can answer it relatively shortly. Um, that was one of the scarier things for me. Yeah. I bet. Um, I mean, not necessarily in getting divorced cause he, he is not somebody who blames a divorced party for being divorced. Just like he doesn't look at it and go, it's the D word kind of thing. Yeah. For him, the stance has much more to do with, I mean, he doesn't believe divorce is ever right. He okay. does believe that, you know, sometimes it can't be helped. Uh, but he doesn't believe that he doesn't believe in divorce and remarriage at all while your former spouse is alive um, because of his, his understanding of the permanence of covenant, yeah. um, which is one of the, you know, it's one of the biblically explainable views. So it was really scary for me to go to him and say, I'm seeing somebody else. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm dating somebody now and, and for, for him, for me to tell him was hard. Like, that's not a thing that should be hard to tell your parents. Yeah. Like that should be something that they should be like, Oh, that's great. When do we get to meet her kind of thing? And, and so I was nervous, but he and I had talked through all of this. And so all he really wanted to know from me was, have you thought through this biblically? Have you arrived at a conclusion that you think is, is the God honoring huh. conclusion. You're not just sort of on a whim, throwing yourself into a romance driven by something maybe sinful, maybe foolish, as opposed yeah. to a, hey, this is a, this is the right next decision. Yeah. And so because we had talked through that once, you know, when I told him that I was dating somebody, he, he didn't bat an eye. He didn't frown. He just, he immediately was a dad. Hmm. Tell me about That's her. Awesome. What's her name? What's she, where's she from? Like the, the things that you would hope for. And so I anticipated it, being really tense and it wasn't and i was huh. so grateful and and his his fathering in that moment was wonderful oh that's awesome so he he would <laughs> wow he would be able to attend the wedding i mean is that <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i mean one, one of my brothers is divorced and remarried and my dad was um oh, wow. my dad was at you know yep. at his second wedding and um and and is and it is not cold or right. distant towards his new daughter-in-law and you know, so he's, he's not on, he's, he's not a kind of a myopic viewpoint person. Yeah. There's a, there's a, a richness and a depth to his mm -hmm. understanding of family and loving. And he's certainly not a perfect dad, but he, he's not a, he's not cutting people off because they have stepped outside yeah. of his theological understanding of things. I mean, that's a, that's a great balance between having, clear and passionate doctrinal conviction and yet also 
complementing that with pastoral compassion and sensitivity mm-hmm. that the, the, you know, and I think, I mean, that's the balance that most, um, I think pastors are trying to, trying to pursue. Sometimes yeah. it's not easy, you know, but, um, before we're, man, we're, we're coming up on an hour, but I, I want to at least briefly talk about your latest book. Um, it's on curi- curiosity or what's the title of it again? Yeah, it's called the curious Christian, the curious Christian. Yeah. Tell us the, yeah. the, 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 what's the elevator pitch on that book? So the subtitle is how discovering wonder enriches every part of life. And it just, it stemmed from my observation that most people as life goes on, live shrunken down lives, less discovering, less wonder, less excitement. And that, that, that defines their spiritual life, how they, how they view and encounter God. It did uh, how they are a neighbor, how they view and encounter other people, places, whatever. And so it's, it's basically a, trying to look from different angles at how a, an intentional, purposeful curiosity is a thing that breathes life into every relationship we have, relationship with God, relationship with culture, relationship with the arts and literature and other people and in marriage and in parenting and so forth with the idea that especially based on the fact that God is, God is infinite. We will never stop discovering things about God. And if that's not a call to be more curious, I don't really know what is. Mm. Like we, to be uncurious is to say, I have discovered everything I need mm. to know yeah. about life. And that, that just sounds depressing to me. Um, but we default to it because yeah. curiosity can be hard work. So it's, it's looking at that, trying to, to look at it from different angles, applying to different parts of life, dwell a little bit on the richness and magnitude of who God is all in about, I don't know, 160 pages or so. <laughs> That's awesome. And you're working on, are you allowed to talk about the uh, book you're working oh, on? Oh, yeah. 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 So my fourth book doesn't have a title yet, but I'm, I'm working hard on it to try to hit my deadlines. Uh, it's a book about happiness and expectations. So leaning heavily on Ecclesiastes to help find sort of a biblical realism on what is, what is it right to expect of this life? Hmm. Because there's so much dream chasing and so much idealism and high aspirations, and there's so much disappointment and depression and frustration, you know, and then you have, you have eternal promises of God. And then you have verses that say things like in this life, you will have trouble. So what is it fair to expect of this life? Yeah. What does happiness look like in this life? Because, because I do think God wants us to be happy, mm-hmm. but I don't think that means what, what it's often been claimed mm-hmm. where happiness is, you know, an infusion of riches and getting whatever we want and things like that. So yeah. what is, what is a realistic expectation for happiness in these years we have on earth? Awesome. Dude, thanks so much for being on the podcast. This is long overdue. Uh, just, I so appreciate your voice uh, from a distance. I wish we lived closer together. I really enjoyed the times <laughs> we get to hang out. But uh, yeah, yeah, thanks so much one. for your authenticity, your honesty, and just uh, for pursuing uh, Christianity in such a real and, and raw, <laughs> uh, raw <laughs> manner. So thanks for being on the Theology in the Raw, man. Absolutely. I've loved it. Thank you. Cool. Take care. Thanks for listening to another episode of Theology and Neural. If you want to support the show, if you were encouraged, challenged, blessed, consternated by this episode or other episodes that you have heard on Theology and Neural, then you can support the show for as little as five bucks a month. You can go to patreon.com forward slash Theology and Neural. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash Theology and Neural. Hopefully you can spell Theology and Neural. And you can support the show for as little as five bucks a month and get access to premium content in return. This is a listener supported show. 
So if it is blessing you, challenging you, if it plays some role in your spiritual walk, then please consider supporting the show. Or if you don't want to support the show or you can't support the show, please consider leaving a review. Uh, apparently, it's a good thing when people leave reviews, uh, preferably a good review. But hey, if you hate the show and you want to trash it, then leave a trash review. I'd rather have you be honest than just be fake. So please consider leaving a review. That's all I got. We'll see you next week on Theology in Raw. <laughs>